This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. On Tuesday, the Trudeau Liberals offered the country's premiers and territorial leaders a new health care funding deal, which provides for an additional $46.2 billion over 10 years, beyond what is already given out in transfer payments. And while this sounds impressive, UHN CEO Kevin Smith points out this basically just covers inflation. In addition to the additional funds, healthcare stakeholders want to know if there's anything in this offer that will solve the nation's healthcare crisis and transform the ailing system. Libby discussed the offer with the medical record panel on Wednesday. Dr. Alyssa Naiman is a family physician and founder and medical director of the medical station in Toronto. Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. And Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. I find it hard to get too excited about the federal and provincial governments arguing about how much of your tax dollars they're going to spend on health. I mean, this really isn't new money. Uh, it's basically a allocation of, of existing money that you're paying on taxes. I mean, to me, right now, when you when you pay your taxes, Willie, I think about 62 cents goes to the federal government, 38 cents goes to the provincial government. To me, a logical way to do it would be is if that's not enough for the provincial government, they should... Uh, Fund, you know, alter the distribution so the provinces get more because healthcare is more expensive. I, to me, what I would say most disappointing is what's not in this announcement, which is, I think that the way the federal government could best help health would be to fund specific national programs in health so that these services are provided to everybody in Canada. And the obvious one, and the one that's on the table, is the national pharmacare program. I honestly think a better way for the feds to contribute to health would be in in some national initiatives, which would be consistent across the country and would provide services such as drugs to everybody. Dr. Razak, there's uh, $2 billion unconditional to immediately try to get more primary care, family doctors, and uh, help to emergency rooms. So money may be immediate, but but how do you, you, uh, you know, staff up immediately? I think a lot of us are still trying to absorb what's happened here. I don't think that anyone considers this more than just continued payment on a system which is clearly struggling. And many were hoping, including myself, for thinking about something more visionary and transformational in the system. We have a national Medicare system that you know, is about half a century old now and hasn't had a significant revamp. And we are clearly seeing strain in it. And I think the last three years have just accelerated what many were feeling before the pandemic started in terms of capacity, wait times, access, and many of the barriers that people now are acutely experiencing. And like Dr. Moore, I think I would have liked to see something visionary 
that extends across the country. He mentioned National Pharmacare. I think that's a great one. Um, I think primary care is where my heart would have uh, really liked to see something proposed. Um, some of the interviews you're seeing today with former uh, Minister Jane Philpott, for yeah. example, have, have highlighted that we have a commitment in this country that every child will have access to schooling. We should have, for example, considered a visionary statement such as every individual will have access to a primary care team or a primary care physician or nurse practitioner. That's the kind of vision I would have liked to see. So, I mean, to answer your question, the $2 billion as a prioritized funding towards emergency rooms, wait times, pediatric care, that's great. I think there are clearly problems that can be addressed there. But that, that central vision is what I think was really missing from this announcement. Dr. Naiman, how does even say we got a central vision, how would that help you uh, recruit more family docs or, uh, you know, care for more patients? What do you think? I don't actually think it would help very much on a practical basis. Um, the problem with family medicine is that the system is broken. So new people who are in family medicine and graduate from the residency program don't want to provide comprehensive primary care. Um, it's expensive. You don't get remunerated as well as other specialties. You're, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, you're a small business and the cost of operating a clinic continue and continue to go up. And the demands that are placed upon us on a daily basis, it's you never stop. You're always working and trying to help patients. Um, evenings, weekends, it's this burnout that people complain. And without this actual, not money, money will help to incentivize people to go. But without changing how the healthcare system operates at a primary care level, there won't be any impact because nobody right now wants to go into primary care. Dr. Alyssa Naiman, family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Dr. Fahad Razak, an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. And Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. The medical record panel can be heard every Wednesday after the noon news. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Talk about inflation. Our natural gas bills have gone way up in recent months. In fact, GTA residents have seen rates double over the past two years, from 10 cents a cubic meter to 23 cents a cubic meter. Companies like Enbridge are blaming the war on Ukraine and the U.S. demand on Canadian natural gas. In addition, they are acknowledging they are estimating how much energy we use rather than actually reading the meters. Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and Dr. Warren Maybe, director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University. It's a truth that the cost of natural gas has gone up. Uh, this has to do with a lot of different things, not just the war in Ukraine, uh, but more and more Utilities relying on natural gas for electricity production, uh, you know, as they're maybe transitioning away from some of the more dirty fossil fuels like coal. Uh, there's a global market for natural gas that is continuing to become uh, more competitive. And of course, the war in Ukraine has driven up the cost of natural gas because uh, there's so much speculation on the market and, you know, we saw those future prices really skyrocket through the fall. So part of what you're seeing is definitely uh, the actual commodity price going up. But uh, 
what you're talking about, about the meters not being read properly or the estimates coming in wrong, that's another factor. And when you compound all these things, yes, you're definitely seeing uh, higher bills. Uh, Dan, I want to get onto the meters not being read and, and they're being read by a third party. And, and I mean, I'm assuming that they probably use some kind of computer program. And I would not be shocked if, uh, you know, they have targets to meet or something like that because I, you know, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Well, it is the deployment of uh, you know new digital technology, and it's uh, not, of course, the only utility. We we see this in uh, in electric bills as well. We've seen this for quite some time. I think this is just uh, the providers uh, catching up with times. But what goes up must come down, not just in terms of the price itself or natural gas. But this, uh, if an adjustment has been made based on assumptions that are you know through artificial intelligence or otherwise. Uh, it means that uh, you would uh, automatically be in line for a an adjustment, which I think is done more periodically. This, by the way, this process, which has been around for some time, kicked around for some time, has been approved by the regulator. So when we're talking about natural gas, unlike gasoline or diesel prices, uh, your your natural gas price and those charges that you pay for are pre-approved months before by the uh, Ontario Energy Board. So it is a regulated price, and so are the instruments that are used. So I guess that what we're going to see here, uh, not just in terms of overestimation uh, of average prices, as you saw, Libby, uh, and what you, the consumption was, uh, markets are, are simply now basically trashing uh, natural gas prices. And uh, we're going to see you know, uh, that $23 you mentioned at the outset uh, coming up from 10 we're going to walk right back there between now and probably the 1st of July. But unfortunately, we have to wait three months because that's when the price revisions take place post-approvals uh, by the Ontario Energy Board. And, uh, you know, if if you talk to the utilities, they'd say, oh, we'll just get equal billing or something. Is that, is, is that a reasonable response? I don't think it's a reasonable response if the amount of, that you're forced to pay up front uh, tends to uh, become outrageously high and for many people, unacceptably high. And so I think there has to be a, a better way of squaring uh, this uh, this problem by ensuring that uh, the estimations may be more conservative or more modest than uh, perhaps uh, as egregiously as you've had to pay, and many others have complained to me about this. Uh, I suspect that the Ontario Energy Board, the next round of hearings, uh, will have a lot more to, uh, to look at. Uh, and people should be writing their uh, provincial MPPs and the Ontario Energy Board uh, to uh, to protest, to say this is wrong. Forget Enbridge or whoever your natural gas supplier may be. Go directly to the source of the people who are going to be making the decisions. I think you'll find that uh, those uh, those those comments and those laments normally don't fall on very deaf ears. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and Dr. Warren Maybe, director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University. They were in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the repercussions of saying no to 24-7 warming centers for the homeless. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. A lot of new decisions have come out of this past week's Toronto City Council meeting. Those controversial bike lanes north of Bloor along Young Street are going to be permanent. This is part of the rest of the active TO program, also now permanent. And another controversial decision, a vote against keeping warming centers for the homeless open 24-7 until the middle of April. Libby asked our Tune Into the Town panelists their thoughts on choosing against offering refuge for homeless people every night during the winter. Ben Spur is City Hall reporter for the Toronto Star. Councillor Stephen Holliday represents Ward 2 Etobicoke Centre. And Anna Bailau is a former Toronto City Councillor. The reality is that warming centres have proven to be more expensive, and even shelters are now being used as de facto housing. People that should be in supportive housing end up in our shelter system sometimes for years and in our streets for years because they don't have the mental health supports, addiction supports. And so what is happening is solutions start bringing, you know, it was the respite centers. It was centers that was going to be, you know, and then they end up being permanent. And and then you go from actually having supportive housing to having shelters to, to now you open respite centers and now respite centers are open all the time. And then warming centers with people just have like a cot and a chair, like, that is not the system we want to create. We want to create a shelter that actually acts as a shelter and have proper supportive housing and proper housing. Stephen Holiday, was this the right decision? Well, as sure as the seasons change, there is a debate on shelters every winter at council. The facts are that the Toronto Public Service uh, deeply care about having a sustainable and workable shelter system, and they can open the warming centers as they need to. Um, but that that uh, that fact was cast aside, and people went straight to this idea that we're going to order them to keep them open every day as if it was going to solve the situation. I saw this as an undermining of the discretion of the people that run the systems. I think they open them when they think that they need them. They try to maximize the resource and look after as many people as they can. And that was the difficult discussion we had at council. Ultimately, the staff still have the authority to open them up as they need to. And uh, and that still exists today. And council made the decision to put their faith really in the staff and to, to say to the other governments, hey, you need to help us out. This is a complex situation where there's 9,000 people in the shelters in Toronto. And and some of them are going to be people that you see visibly on the street, but there are many more that are within the system and there are many more that are on track to find permanent housing one day. Ben Spur, was this a matter of, uh, of uh, some advocates, you know, uh, uh, figuring out how to, uh, you know, uh, seize the media attention and, and get their point of view out there and circumvent uh, what I guess the professional opinion was? Well, this, this motion came from, from city councillors and went through the Board of Health. Um, so I think there is genuine concern from some uh, members uh, at council that the current system is, is not working. And I, I think um, a lot of residents would, would agree with that. Um, so I think um, there is a, a concern that what's happening now is, is not 
working and that uh, solutions of permanent housing while the city is working on on that um, you know are not coming immediately this this winter when people are still going to have to be outside um, and I, I think that what does concern a, a lot of people that my colleague um, Ed Keenan wrote a, a column in the star today um, about um, you know there was concerns raised by uh, some at city hall that um, there was not enough uh, funding to do this uh, not enough staff uh, to, to open up these uh, warming centers uh, full-time and, and yet the city does seem to find money for other causes when it, when it needs to on, on short notice. We've seen the city uh, invest uh, $1.7 million a month in uh, deploying uh, police officers on the TTC. Um, that wasn't originally in the budget, but, uh, it, you know, the council snapped to attention and um, are supporting that and uh, with the mayor's uh, backing as well. Um, and we're funding things like uh, a, you know, bid for the, for the World Cup that uh, is not uh, fully supported by the other levels of government, so we're not quite sure how that's going to going to turn out. We're spending millions on issues like that, but um, when it comes to finding four hundred thousand dollars a month to open up a warming center, um, that that raises some concerns at City Hall. So I think uh, you know advocates for the homeless find that uh, hard to square. Ben Spur is City Hall reporter for the Toronto Star. Councillor Stephen Holliday represents Ward 2 Etobicoke Centre. And Anna Bailau is a former Toronto City Councillor. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. One of the signature promises of U.S. President Joe Biden's Tuesday night State of the Union address is a pledge to double down on his administration's policy to buy American. So is this pledge destined to become a disaster for Canada, or is it just a lot of talk because of the impracticality and drawbacks for Americans as well as Canadians? Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss. Dr. Mark Froze is a professor of political science and founding director of the International Studies Program at Berman University in Alberta. And Edward Alden is senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, specializing in U.S. economic competitiveness, trade, and immigration policy. To be clear, it has been the law of the land in the United States since the 1930s. So there are long-standing by American provisions for federal government contracts and for state level government contracts they've been enforced with you know sort of different levels of intensity and what president biden is making clear is that he intends to enforce by american laws with a a uh, a particular level of intensity but this is a perennial issue between the united states and canada this is one that's been fought over many times before you know like softwood lumber dairy or some of the other issues so this is nothing new for canada it's a challenge that uh, recurs uh, with 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 uh, a fair bit of regularity uh dr froze do you agree this is nothing new for canada Oh, sure. I mean, uh, for as far as that goes, it absolutely isn't anything new for us. I think what is new is that we have a sort of bipartisan consensus we've seen in both the Trump administration and the Biden administration that uh, free trade is not a winning vote getter anymore. And as a result, uh, presidents in wanting to reach across the aisle like Biden is are looking to double down onto a kind of America first or buy American kind of rhetoric. So what's the danger of that for Canada? On one level, you could argue it's nothing new, which is, I mean, I, I agree with that as far as it goes. This has always been a thing that Canada's had to, had to deal with, and we've dealt with it quite well. 
On the other hand, because it is a new conventional wisdom, it's going to mean Canada is going to have to work hard all the time. We're going to have to be on point consistently with opposing these things. And that's probably going to mean Canada is going to have to play a lot more of that sort of transactional political game that happens in Ottawa and in Washington, perhaps even more in Washington, in which we have to decide what we can give the Americans to get into, you know, fortress North, fortress economic North America. That might mean, you know, being on side on China and that kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm wondering about the cost of this in dollars and cents. I mean, it's been pointed out many times that it's not necessarily fabulous for Americans because it raises the price of the goods and it's not necessarily practical. I mean, even if you look at something like transportation, uh, when it comes to steel or anything else, uh, it can be a lot uh, closer to get it across the border than at some far-flung place in your own country. Uh, is, is that, um, is, is that an argument that holds sway, Edward Alden? Yeah, I mean, yes, sometimes absolutely. I think that was part of what happened, uh, during the financial crisis when, uh, the Obama administration, you know, funneled a lot of money into the economy with similar Buy American provisions. And, you know, Mark talked about the, the transactional politics in Washington. The Canadian government's very good at that. It's not a coincidence that the Canadian embassy is a stone's throw away from the U.S. Congress. And so the Canadian government managed to negotiate a variety of exceptions. And part of that is you have a lot of American construction uh, infrastructure firms that rely on Canadian inputs. So for them, the, the, the Buy America provisions can be difficult uh, to adhere to. You know, we have very integrated North American supply chains, so, so this comes up. But to be clear, you know, sometimes um, the U.S. government is willing to do things that hurt American consumers. I mean, there are significant tariffs right now on softwood lumber imports. Those are driving up the price of home construction here in the United States at a time when inflation is generally a problem. So sometimes U.S. governments will do things that hurt American consumers and hurt Canada. So that alone doesn't always give Canada a pass. Edward Alden, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, specializing in U.S. economic competitiveness, trade and immigration policy. And Dr. Mark Froes, professor of political science and founding director of the International Studies Program at Berman University in Alberta. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Joan in Toronto phoned to say she thinks there should be more rules for cyclists. If uh, cyclists are going to use our roads, why are they not subject to the same rules as the motorists? They should be licensed and they should be ticketed for not obeying the signs. Bonnie in Toronto called about high natural gas bills. So we did a renovation. We're in Toronto. We did a renovation in 2020 
and um, replaced our whole HVAC system and uh, set up uh, a new account with Enbridge. We were being charged like $50, $30 a month. And we kept thinking, wow, what a great uh, contractor we had. The house is really secure and safe and warm. And then um, in May of 2022, we got a big bill of almost 300 or $650. And when I called them to complain about the bill, they had been estimating our heat uh, or our gas bill since November of 2021. And this was in May of 2022. And so when I complained, they said that they didn't need to do, uh, they could do estimates for a whole year. They were only required to do an actual reading once a year. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Cindy in Toronto, who also phoned in about unusually high natural gas bills. In August, my elderly mother, who's 86, received um, an Enbridge bill, and it was $450. Wow. So I was shocked. I called Enbridge, and the lady that I spoke with at customer service, she seemed to be very frustrated and kept on telling me that prices have increased. This is, you know, to be expected. I said, listen, lady, I said, this is August. This is like October. My mother didn't, she didn't even have the heat on, never mind this, this bill. So she said that, you know, um, it, uh, she would look into us. No, we need to look into it now. So I, I, we talked about it. And finally, I said to her, could there be a, a problem with the meter? I want the meter changed. This is impossible. So she said, uh, she asked me to read the meter. And yes, they had estimated uh, uh, something that was like 4720, and they estimated like 4750, you know, and that came out to a $450 bill in, the, in October. <laughs> that does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.